there. Welcome back to The Yoga Show from Yoga Journal, your place for relaxed, informative, and inspirational conversations in wellness and beyond. I'm your host, Lindsay Tucker, executive editor of Yoga Journal. And this week, we're talking to Dr. Dean Radin, chief scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences. He's a parapsychologist and researcher of psychic phenomena. Dr. Radin has dedicated his career to understanding the effect of human consciousness on the physical world. From various Emoto-style water studies to Gonsfeld tests, both of which we'll discuss in this episode, his often controversial research claims to demonstrate human ability to experience precognition, telepathy, and telekinesis. In one of his books, Supernormal, Science, Yoga, and the Evidence for Extraordinary Psychic Abilities, he examines whether yoga and meditation can unleash inherent supernormal mental powers such as telepathy, clairvoyance, and precognition. Here's my conversation with Dr. Raiden. Dr. Raiden, thank you so much for being with us on the show today. How are you? I'm doing fine. Thank you. Excellent. Um, Okay, so you are the chief scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences. So what is the Institute of Noetic Sciences? Our institute uh, was started by the Apollo 14 astronaut Edgar Mitchell, who was also the sixth man to walk on the moon. Wow. Uh, Edgar was a a naval captain, a test pilot, uh, an MIT graduate in aerospace engineering, and uh, about the last person in the world that you might expect would be interested in psychic phenomena. But one of the reasons why he started the Institute was because, uh, this would be back in 1972, um, on the way from the moon back to the earth, he had a mystical experience. He did. He did. He, he, as he put it, uh, he he had the window seat on the way back, that his job was to land the lunar module, and he had done that. So he didn't have as many tasks to do as the other astronauts. And, and the process of looking out of the window and seeing the Earth as the, as the capsule rotated, the Earth, the moon, the stars, again and again, over and over again, he had a chance to contemplate this incredible view of the Earth about the size of a marble and realizing that uh, all of our history, everything any of us have ever known is on that little tiny blue ball. Yeah. And so something about that, that uh, experience it being real for him, uh, sparked a sense, uh, the way he put it was a palpable sense of unity of all life, not just on the earth, but everywhere in the universe. And it was such an overpowering experience that when he came back to the earth, he wondered like many people do who have a spontaneous mystical experience, what is that? How do we Mm -hmm. even begin to understand that given the, the technological way of thinking about the world? So he started our institute to use the tools and techniques of science to try to understand what what consciousness is. So for a long time, our our motto, our mission was to explore the frontiers of consciousness. So we were doing for inner space what he was doing for outer space. Oh, interesting. And how did you go about doing that? Well, like any form of exploration, you use the best uh, tools that you can find Mm-hmm. And, and in, in the case of science, you use uh, scientific tools. So what we do is uh, we're primarily focused on psychic phenomena. And one of the reasons is that uh, while it might seem like things like telepathy and clairvoyance are uh, too difficult or maybe not even amenable to scientific study, in fact, they're perfectly amenable because science is actually quite good at, at what it right. can study. 
So we do laboratory experiments on all of the classes of psychic phenomena. So when many of us hear the word psychic, we think of maybe fortune tellers, mediums, X-Men stuff. Um, When you talk about psi, as you often call it, what are you referring to? I'm referring to experiences that people talk about, not what we see in fiction. Mm -hmm. Fiction is always an elaboration of, of the real world, and it'll push the real world into a form where it's such a high contrast between everyday life and the story that you were compelled to watch the story. So yeah, we all like the X-Men. The the real phenomena in most cases are much, much weaker than that. So we're interested in this not because we want to develop (laughs) X-Men, because among other things, we can't find any that will come into the laboratory and do anything. Uh, We're more interested in what is true in general in in the general population. Like, do we all have actual ability to perceive at a distance or through space or through time? Uh, Can our intentions influence the physical world? And in all cases, even to a smidgen, a tiny little degree, if that in fact is true, it is a significant challenge to some of our ideas that we use in the neurosciences to understand who and what we are. Because if you go into the neurosciences today, the assumption is that, the, that you are your brain. As, as Francis Crick put it, uh, you're just a pack of neurons. The other interpretation then, or the other assumption is that the brain can be understood as a classical physics object. What that means is classical physics is kind of a refinement of common sense. It's like it's an object, it's involved in some kind of information processing. We very clearly see uh, neural correlates of consciousness. But when it comes down to brass tacks, nobody has any idea at all how a three-pound lump of tissue inside your skull is giving rise to your experience. Mm. We understand how information can be processed, but we don't know how to describe the experience. Well, the experience has something to do with the nature of consciousness. And so the question that is raised by mystical and psychic experiences is whether the, the prevailing assumptions in the neurosciences are correct. Like, can you actually describe the brain as a classical object? You can, but is that enough to describe consciousness? And in particular, can you use that description to describe why somebody can be telepathic, for example? And the answer there is no. And so this is one of the reasons why uh, in the academic world today, even the mere existence of psychic phenomena is a highly controversial topic. And it all devolves back into this notion that you are your brain. And since Mm -hmm. your brain can't jump out and see something at a distance, any evidence that you provide for that, of which there's a lot, you have to ignore it. It can't possibly be true. But what this tells me is, not just me, by the way, but my colleagues around the world as well, uh, since we can demonstrate telepathy and clairvoyance and precognition and psychokinetic effects in the laboratory, and I've been doing so for over 100 years, it says there's something about our assumptions in science today which are simply wrong. Some people find that a very frightening thing. I don't at all, because when you look at the history of science, our assumptions are always changing as we get new and better data. So one of the implications of all this is if, if our basic understanding of who and what we are is even slightly wrong, then it suggests uh, 
among other things, that we may not live in the nihilistic universe that the current scientific worldview says that it is. Right? Mm-hmm. Science, science today says that there is no purpose or meaning to anything, that you, you live and die and it's, and it's completely pointless. So you, you live in the best way you can, you try to help others, uh, but ultimately your, your life your, doesn't have any inherent meaning to it because the universe doesn't have any inherent meaning. That's, that's one of the, of the implications of materialism as a way of describing everything. Right. But if it turns out that consciousness actually is capable of other things, like your consciousness somehow can see what's going on in Pluto right now if it really wants to, then that would say, well, maybe there's something wrong about this idea of a nihilistic universe, and maybe it is purposeful, or maybe it is meaningful, or at least it is not quite what materialism says it is. And so that brings us to yoga, Mm -hmm. because yoga as an Eastern esoteric tradition has a very different worldview than modern science. And within the yogic worldview, I'm talking about classical yoga here, the idea that people have these special abilities, not just psychic abilities, but like super abilities, very much like X-Men, this is not considered controversial at all, because in that worldview, it is to be expected. And so to make a a four-hour lecture in one sentence... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I think what, what is happening is that for tens of thousands of years, we had basically what is now called the esoteric worldview. That worldview in three words is consciousness is fundamental. That's what that worldview is all about. The, the modern worldview is the complete flip of that. It's saying that consciousness is basically nothing and everything is made out of matter. So there's an enormous amount that could be said in a positive way for materialism. It allows us to do this podcast, for example, using technologies that the ancients never developed because they had a different worldview. But I think what is happening is that at the leading edge of science today, you find more and more people beginning to entertain the idea of of concepts like neutral monism or panpsychism and even idealism. So this idealism is the philosophical term for consciousness is fundamental. And the flip side of idealism Mm -hmm. is materialism. There are two ends of a spectrum. So panpsychism is the idea that Every material object has some form of inherent awareness, like uh, from humans all the way down to electrons and all the way up to galaxies, presumably. So this, this then is a, is a spin on the idea of uh, materialism that is not just a hunk of matter, but it's matter that has this other property where it is self-aware. So that's, this is already a radical change from the scientific worldview as of 10 years ago, People are beginning to think, well, maybe maybe there is some kind of inherent awareness in everything. And so what's happened in the past 10 years? What studies have been published that have changed that attitude? I think it's, it's not so much uh, published studies, but mm. over the course of perhaps 30 to 40 years where people began to become interested in the scientific studies on consciousness, it, I think it began to dawn on people working at the leading edge and this is within the neurosciences and physics and philosophy, that we really have no idea how to account for internal experience. So it was suggesting that there's something wrong, like we started from the wrong assumptions. And so philosophers have been talking about these kinds of concepts from, for thousands of years, and panpsychism was known, and neutral monism, all of these terms are variations on ways of putting consciousness back into science because it was completely taken out. For many, many years, consciousness was considered a, a non-entity, like it didn't even exist. Really? Yeah. I mean, the, 
for, for probably 50 years, behaviorism was the, the main form of psychology. And behaviorism said, essentially, that consciousness is an illusion. That we're not really conscious. All we are are behavior that the brain is doing somehow. And it completely ignored the idea that the only thing that we actually know is our own awareness. Everything else is an inference. I mean, literally everything else, all everything we know about science, about each other, about even ourselves, is only there because of, we are aware. And so nevertheless, for a half a century, it was more or less received within science that consciousness is nothing even to study. So it doesn't, it's like an epiphenomenon of the brain. Mm-hmm. So it, it took a long time for that to finally dissolve uh, as, as a, an aberrant concept took a long time, but eventually it's gone away. So for the past 30 years or so, you find more and more people in many different scientific disciplines who have become interested in this idea of consciousness, how to study it, how to understand it, how to model it, all of those kinds of questions. So while I focus on psychic phenomena, and while our institute does, uh, it does so mainly because we're interested in what are the capacities of consciousness in, in the larger scale, and in particular the ones that are challenging the prevailing assumptions of of what we understand. And you wrote a book, which was called Supernormal Science, Yoga, and the Evidence for Extraordinary Psychic Abilities. Yes. Um, So how are quantum concepts woven into spiritual writings such as the Yoga Sutra? The the answer, at least one answer, can be that uh, from a yogic perspective, or actually any, any esoteric perspective, Eastern or Western, it is uh, because consciousness is considered to be fundamental, it is mm-hmm. able to do certain things uh, that we can describe as being non-local, right? So uh, a, a yogi who practices uh, the cities, for example, the very first city mentioned, the powers mentioned in the Yoga Sutras, is one where you're able to perceive past, present, and future at the same time. So perceiving the past, we might call memory. Not so surprising. Perceiving the mm-hmm. present is our everyday experience. Perceiving the future, well, now we're talking about precognition. So in science today, precognition would be said, well, that, that's ridiculous. It, it entails all kinds of causal paradoxes, and the mind can't do that. So it's ignored. But with it, from the yoga perspective, it's not ignored. It's one of the, it's fact, the, one of the most elementary cities that has developed as a result of doing yogic practice. So, so what do we do with that? So if we look for a, a scientific explanation for it, we can't go to classical physics because in classical physics you can't do precognition. There are no retroactions. Actually, that's not completely true because the equations of classical and quantum mechanics are time symmetric. Like it doesn't matter which direction time is going, the equations still work. So there's already, even in classical mechanics, there's this strange thing about time. But in quantum mechanics, you now run into this notion of non-locality. And so non-locality means that there are correlations, maybe even connections, that transcend space and time. Well, being able to see past, present, and future at the same time is transcending time. Mm -hmm. And so the connection there is that quantum mechanics paints a picture of physical reality which is compatible with the kinds of abilities that the yogis would talk about, whereas classical physics is not. And achieving... Um, I think some of these things are often achieved through meditation. Is that jibe with your experience? Yes. In the uh, yoga, yoga Sutras, the cities 
uh, can be developed after you have achieved samadhi in meditation. So yeah. the average person is never going to achieve samadhi, partially because we don't live in ashrams very much anymore, and you need a certain degree of talent to be able to sustain the states where you, you go into this these mystical states. But the Yoga Sutra says in one of the books that if you go into samadhi and you do practice of samyama, you will begin to develop all kinds, at least 20 or so different kinds of cities. There are very few people today who can do cities on demand. Uh, mm -hmm. There are programs that teach people how to do it. But even, I think, way back when, it wasn't common for somebody to be able to develop most of the cities. On the other hand, some of the elementary cities, like uh, spontaneous forms of telepathy and spontaneous forms of clairvoyance and precognition, that actually is pretty common. We did a survey a couple of years ago with people who uh, were ranging from just beginning to long-term meditators, and we asked them a series of questions about experiences that they may have had, which they attributed to their practice. And so 75% said, yeah, they had, they had experienced things like very strange synchronicities and, and elementary psychic phenomena, usually spontaneously. And what would an elementary, what's an example of an elementary psychic phenomenon? The phone rings and you, before you pick it up, you know who's on the other end of the line. Mm. Or the feeling of being stared at. Or you do something uh, with, with an intention to accomplish something and a, by strange set of circumstances, it all kind of, kind of comes together. But, it, mm -hmm. but spontaneous. You didn't plan how everything was going to come together, but it just did sort of magically. So that's a synchronicity. So those, those kinds of things, when they happen spontaneously, seem to occur more for people when they begin to do serious meditative practice. So that, that fits with the stories of the cities, right? These are uh, guideposts along the way of developing certain abilities. But just like any other form of human performance, uh, people who have talents in certain areas, they will go much farther and much faster than the average person. The Yoga Show will return in a moment after these messages. Could I, uh, could I ask for some clarification? Sure. Um, is that okay, Lindsay? Yeah, of course. We, we, hi, listeners. We had talked about me. I'm a former math teacher, and so there's a lot of like data involved in in Dr. Raiden's research. And so I had I had some I had some data questions specifically. So you mentioned like um, like uh, telephone clairvoyance, or uh, you you mentioned a specific term. I don't want to I don't want to misquote mm -hmm. you. Um, what was that where like you think of someone in the well, we'd call it telephone telepathy telephone telepathy so um how do you account for basically the the noise in synchronicity like you know i think about you about 10 times a day you call me about 10 times a week and then there are certain you know nodes where that lines up and then we retroactively say oh it's because i was tele it was telephone telepathy sure yeah, so this is what you're talking about is the experimental design to figure out the difference mm -hmm. between a chance occurrence and a non-chance occurrence. Exactly. Right. So for telephone telepathy, there have been experiments conducted where you and two of your friends or three of your friends may all be involved. You get a phone call from one of those three friends selected at random by some random process, and you have to say who you think it is on the, on the line before the line is actually opened. So you get a call, 
you mm-hmm. speak or you record in some way or somebody else records, I think it's friend A, whoever that happens to mm-hmm. be. Uh, and then the, 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 line, the connection is made and you get to talk to that person. So rudimentary probability should say if there's three people that are potentially going to call you, ABC, you're going to be right one third of the time. That's right. Yeah. So then you look at your actual hit rate and you compare it against the number of trials that have been done and you can come out with a probabilistic estimate of it being chance or not chance. These are experiments primarily conducted by Rupert Sheldrake in Mm -hmm. England. Mm -hmm. Uh, I believe he did versions where there were three callers and other versions where there were a total of four callers. With the four callers, you'd expect a 25% hit rate, and I think he, w- he was getting occasionally as high as 40%. That's not the kind of experiment that I generally run, so the statistics are not right on top of my head. What I can talk about with more authority, uh, because I've done the, the experiments, are laboratory versions of telepathy experiments, which have been repeated something like um, 4,000 times, three to 4,000 times. Mm-hmm. So... That, that experiment goes like this. This is the laboratory version, uh, not of, tele- of telephone telepathy because there's no telephone involved, but trying to send an image to somebody else at a distance. The way this experiment works, it's called the, the Gansfeld experiment because Gansfeld is a German word meaning whole field. And it, this is a stimulation technique, which is kind of like uh, sensory deprivation, but it's not really deprivation. It's more like stimulus. It was developed by Gestalt therapists and the, or Gestalt psychologists in the 1930s to look at what happens when you take away external sensory input into somebody, and you you can kind of evoke a hypnagogic state in someone pretty quickly. It involves a person who will send information, a person who will receive information, and then usually two experimenters. The experiment takes about 90 minutes, so there's a lot of effort involved, and you can end up with one data point. You're either going to get a hit or a miss. So you take the person who play the role of the receiver, you put them in a room in a comfy chair, uh, you put a half of a ping pong ball over each eye, and you ask them to keep their eyes open, then you shine a red light in their face, and you put on headphones that play white noise. So when a person relaxes in that condition in about 10 minutes, most people begin to mildly hallucinate. They, they, uh, it's like dropping into a hypnagogic state. You're reducing external stimulation so that you become more and more aware of internal processes, which, which is what you want the person to go into, like they're super sensitive to anything at that point. Meanwhile, at a distance, you've secured your sender in a different location. You make sure there's a long due diligence list on how you make sure that the two can't communicate. Uh, and when we do the study, we put the receiver in a electromagnetically shielded room so that it would block radio and other kinds of ways of communicating. So before either of the two people come in, you've pre- you prepared pools of four targets each. Each target is a photograph. Uh, you s- randomly select one of the pools, and then you randomly select one of the four pictures, which is in the pool. So you now have a randomly selected picture from a randomly selected pool, the sender and receiver have no idea what any of these pictures are. And you give the picture to the sender with the instructions to send the content of the picture into the thoughts of the receiver in the other room. And these two people know each other? Sometimes they'll come in as friends. They, they will know each other or family members. Sometimes there's college sophomores who just met. So a wide variety of different pairs because that allows you then to see what, what is the relationship say, about the Mm -hmm. ability to do this. The vast majority of these experiments have used college students. After the the 
the receivers in the guns felt safe for a while. The sender's told now to start sending mentally, connect with that remote person. The receivers has to speak aloud anything that comes to mind. After the sender does does uh, sending for 20 minutes or so, the receiver's taken out of the Gonsfeld condition and is shown four pictures, one of which is the real target and three decoys. So by chance, 25% hit rate. Uh, while they're looking at the pictures, the audio is played back to them so they can be reminded of what their impressions were. And they simply have to select which one they think matches the impressions the best. So there you have a very clear one in four chance of being right. Mm -hmm. Over approximately 4,000 such sessions, the hit rate is around 30%, not 25%. When you do the statistics on that, you you get odds against chance of billions upon billions to one against chance. Certain groups had a higher hit rate than the 30%, though, correct? Right. Yes. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So this is one of the reasons why you select different pairs of people. So... Uh, when you look at, at correlates between personalities and professions of people versus their experiences that they have, psychic experiences, one class of kinds of people who consistently have a very high correlation are creative people. So we're talking about musicians, artists, writers, people involved in creative arts. They both have more experiences and not surprisingly, their belief is much higher than the average person. So there have been telepathy experiments, Gonsfeld experiments, uh, with students at Juilliard and, and similar kinds of creative efforts. And they, on average, get around a 40% hit rate in, in a one-in-four wow. game. So there, uh, I think the there were nine or so experiments with about 350 total sessions, and the hit rate being 40%, you, again, have extremely small probabilities of this being a chance result uh, with much less effort like 300 trials as opposed to 3,000 trials. So what is that telling us? Creative people are more open to this phenomenon or they're used to sort of channeling in the way that maybe other people aren't? Uh, One of the traits is openness. And the so-called big five personality inventory, that one one of the five ways of describing personality is openness to experience. And so creative people have to be open to experience, otherwise they're not gonna be very creative. There's also a possibility that we don't actually know where creativity comes from. We can kind of make up in some cases maybe what's going on. But if you push creativity to its limit, and now now we're talking about geniuses, we're coming up with things that who knows where it comes from. One possibility is that they have a certain talent, a psychic talent, and they're able to get information from who knows where in ways that average people cannot. Mm -hmm. And by the way... A genius, autistic savants, spontaneous savants, acquired savants. There's lots of categories of phenomena which are not exactly psychic, but still very strange, which mm. cannot be yet described, and I think probably will not be described by the neurosciences as we know them today. We have no idea where, right. where these things come from or even how they work. Yeah, I think you use Mozart as an example in one of your talks. Yeah. As a kid, how did Mozart knew how to do that? And we don't know. So you told me about a study where, a recently published study, where you had some Buddhist monks. So they blessed the water with the intention to make seeds grow. Mm -hmm. And then what happened? They grew better. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. they grew better. The the monks uh, blessed water, and then we had control water from the same source that was not blessed. 
And then the water was given under double-blind conditions to a lab tech whose job was to grow seeds. Okay, so just in case anyone listening doesn't know what double-blind is, can you explain what that is and why you do that in your experiments? So a double-blind method means that uh, anybody who's involved in the experiment, especially the performance side of the experiment, uh, or the measurements, they don't know what condition they're dealing with. And, and it's because if you do know what condition you're dealing with, like this is the blessed water and this is not the blessed water, you're very likely to treat them differently. So the blinding mm-hmm. process keeps you blind to what, what is the substance that you're dealing with or what is the condition that you're dealing with. The double blindedness means that any person who is engaged in dealing with the subjects of the experiment, they, they can't know which water they're dealing with. The subjects can't know. The analysts can't know. Everyone along the way is kept blind as much as possible so that you keep bias, subjective bias, out of the picture. So that's considered the gold standard in medical tests. Like this is the reason why you use placebos in tests. So a placebo will look and taste and usually have the same color and everything else as a real pill. And that allows you to see what is the effect of expectation on the subject's part or the patient's part. And what you hope is that if the drug is doing something real, that it'll have a bigger effect than simply a placebo, which would be purely an expectation effect. Right. So in this case, after the water was blessed, then the water was given to somebody else who was not told what the, what the water was. It was just condition A and condition B. That then goes to a person whose job is to grow seeds in, in a mm-hmm. laboratory environment uh, to hydrate the seeds with the same amount of water from the two different sources and then take measurements of the plants that grow as a result. So all of that was blind. In this particular experiment... Uh, I was the final analyst, but I was blind too. I just got a batch of data back saying this is one condition, this is the other, see if there's any difference. So then after I I finished that, then the blind was broken and then then we had the results. Okay. Which were? So what we found was that the the seeds that were grown with the blessed water were significantly more healthy than the seeds that were grown with the same water that was not blessed. The blessing uh, was a specific thing that we asked the the monks to say or to imprint somehow into the water, which was that uh, seeds that were grown by this would would, uh, have more vigor. So what we were mainly interested in is the distance between uh, the top of the roots and the bottom of the first leaves. So that little stem is called the hypocotyl. And in a healthy plant, it is short and fat because it, it means that the Seed has not used all its energy to try to make the leaves. The shorter and fatter it is, the leaves will have that much more energy to grow. And if you accidentally plant a seed too low in the ground or upside down or not getting enough water, it could still make it up to to the surface and start uh, creating leaves, but the hypocotyl will be long and stringy. So a sign of healthy is short and fat. So our, our prediction then was that the blessed uh, plants that ended up being grown would have short, fat hypocotyls, and in fact, they did to an extremely significant degree. Okay, and so when we say extremely significant, what is that? What is that like? Well, from the, a person uh, who doesn't like statistics, they will see the difference between like a one-inch plant and one the size of a giraffe. That's not <laughs> what we're talking about. In terms of the uh, the magnitude of the difference, it was only about. Uh, three or four millimeters, so really mm-hmm. tiny. 
but because the variance, the, the variations in the, the length of these things is very stable, you're able to mm -hmm. say with very high confidence, that's what we mean by highly statistically significant, you have high confidence that the, even though it's only a couple of millimeters different, we know that they're really different. So this right. actually comes up again and again in these kinds of studies. And actually throughout all medical studies and biology in general, what we're interested in is, is this a real thing? Like, does it exist at all? Who cares how big it is? Does it exist? It might seem like the smaller something is, that the more difficult it would be to create confidence that it's really a, a difference, a real difference. But that's not the case at all. That's what statistics are, are very good at. You can tell mm -hmm. the difference between two things which in terms of magnitude are really tiny, but you can have very high confidence that they're not the same. It would be nice if we were able to do big things in the lab, like levitate somebody, but we don't see that. So we do the next best thing, which is to typically to run repeated trials with many people, and then we're able to make an assessment about what is true in general. This is why one of the reasons why we use college sophomores in these tests, by the way, because then we're able to say that the average college student who may or may not ever think that they have any abilities at all, they still can demonstrate telepathy to a small degree, but nevertheless, they can do it mm. under a laboratory condition. Mm -hmm. And that tells us then that all of us probably have some capacity for these kinds of things. And that means that's important to know because it means like just like anybody can play tennis a little bit, well, everyone could be psychic to a little bit. Some people are going to become professional tennis players and some people will become professional psychics, but generally not that many. Right. There was also a change in the chlorophyll, right? Both chlorophyll and anthocyanin. So these are two pigments. Chlorophyll is green, anthocyanin is purple. Those were the two other measures that we were interested in. Uh, both of them, again, have uh, directions that they go into for a more healthy plant. So like more chlorophyll, more anthocyanin is a more healthy plant. And we found statistically significant increases in both of those pigments as well. So, so, so all three of the measures that we were taking indicated that the, uh, the seeds or the plants that were hydrated with the blessed water actually were, were healthier. And speaking of water, one of the things that I asked you about earlier when we spoke was the Dr. Emoto water studies. I think a lot of people are familiar with those studies. They've gotten, you know, kind of a lot of airtime. And there's also a lot of complaints from people saying, um, you know, no one has ever actually replicated Emoto's studies and he didn't do the, the blind, but you actually did. Yeah, we worked with Emoto on two experiments. I saw him give a talk, his usual kind of talk, where he was talking about taking a glass of water and putting a little sign on it saying love, and then another glass of water with something like ugly or some negative comment. Mm -hmm. And then he would do his frozen water crystal thing and take pictures of it. And the pictures that he would then show in his lectures were very dramatically different. The, the love water had always had beautiful crystals, and the ugly water had no, no crystals or bad-looking crystals. So I asked him at that talk, uh, have you ever done this under double-blind conditions where you didn't know how the water was prepared? And the answer was no, he didn't, he didn't do that. He's not a, he wasn't a scientist. He was an artist more. So he agreed to do a study with us where we would prepare the water and then send him the water without saying what condition it was in. And then his technician who would go into the laboratory and take pictures, send it back to us, still not knowing which condition was, it was in. And then we asked hundreds of judges to simply look at the pictures 
we did this online, to look at the pictures and rate how beautiful each picture was. So you, mm-hmm. you, you could do this in a, a more objective way because uh, beauty and crystals are related to the symmetry and, and, how, and the clarity of the crystal. But we just decided to do it close to the way that he actually described, which is it looks nice. So we had <laughs> measures of uh, good lookingness for uh, the, all the crystal pictures that they sent back. And then we did the final analysis. We found that there was a significant difference, small, but a statistically significant difference in the direction that he had claimed. So the, okay. the water that had been intentionally blessed, in this case by a group of a few thousand people at a conference, they simply look better on average than the control water from the same source that was not blessed. So we did first mm-hmm. a double-blind experiment and later a triple-blind experiment. In each case, when you have this blindedness, you're keeping uh, information about who knows what further and further apart. So triple-blind is one more blindedness than a double-blind. So in both of those studies showed a similar effect. We'll be right back with more from The Yoga Show. Um, okay, so quickly circling back to this idea of studying psychic ability, and you said that we study your average college student so that we can say, hey, look, anyone has this ability, even if it's very minute. Has there been any studies or is there any interest in studying people who have, like, are professional psychics? So we've done that primarily with mediums. The, the thing about mm-hmm. mediums is that they're, they're talking to dead people. That's their experience. And so it's relatively easy to set up an experiment under tightly controlled conditions where you can test whether the information that they're getting, now they think they're getting it, or their experiences, they're getting it from a dead person, but you can check whether the information is correct. So we've done experiments like that, and our colleagues have done it as well. It's a little bit easier to find mediums than it is to find psychics. And the the reason is because in the laboratory, you need to create a somewhat artificial construct that is suitable for a laboratory study. And what most psychics will do is like a life reading. Sometimes they'll tell you about something in your future, or they'll tell you what's going on in your mind or something like that. It's more like counseling. It's, it's much more difficult to devise an experiment. Whereas for a medium, the medium is, is getting information, which you can later check and see, is it, it, did Uncle Bob really die this way? Or did, you know, you can find out things like that. And you can do that in a double or triple blind condition too, so that the the, the medium actually never even meets the client directly. They work through what's called a proxy sitter. Whereas for, for psychics, the kinds of experiments that we do in the laboratory are usually not well matched to what a psychic reader would do, which is why there haven't been that many studies looking specifically at psychic readers, even though we're trying to figure out a way of doing that. It's, it's okay. just not done. And so you said you have had some studies with mediums. Mm -hmm. What have those shown? So the initial studies with mediums were mainly interested in uh, finding out whether the medium can get verifiably correct information under conditions where they couldn't use methods like cold reading, which is like reading the expressions on the client. So in these studies, you never have the medium and the client uh, with each other at all. And you can get essentially a hit rate from that. How often Mm -hmm. were the mediums correct? So there, if you do that kind of study, mediums can do that. I mean, not again, some mediums differ in talent as well, but on average, the mediums that we've worked with, all of whom are professionals, they can do that kind of a task and get significant hit rates as a result. 
So after we've done, we and other uh, colleagues have done these proof-oriented experiments, we became more interested in uh, what is happening in the brains of the mediums while they're doing this. So in one experiment, we uh, had the medium do whatever the medium wanted to do, but then we said, okay, now for the next minute, just imagine that you're mentally speaking to a dead person. Don't actually do mediumship, whatever that means. Just imagine that you're doing it. And then for the next minute, uh, you read a story about somebody. And the next minute, do nothing. And then the next minute, do actual mediumship. So they would do these four categories again and again. Meanwhile, we're looking at what's happening in their brain. What we wanted to see was when they're doing mediumship, is that similar to imagining that they're talking to somebody? Or is it similar to reading about somebody? So on. Mm. What we were able to show is that during the period where they're doing mediumship, whatever that is, it is not like imagining. It's not like reading. It's oh. not like hearing. It's something else. So it. So what looked differently in their brains? Well, the, the specifics of where in the brain things were showing up, I don't recall mm. exactly, but there are different regions of the brain totally that were different. were different. Lighting up? Right. Okay. So the, the, the import of that, of course, is to say, uh, first of all, they're, they're not faking it when they're saying they're doing something because it's in that state where they're getting information somehow. But uh, because their brain is acting in a different way, it suggests that they're, internally their experience actually would be different as well. So mm-hmm. the next step would be great to get, do it in a functional MRI because then be able to target it specifically in the brain where it's happening. But we haven't done that yet. Um, I think Aviv has a few, another question, I, at least one. Yeah, I just have one more question about, um, I, it, I want you to, uh, I'd like your assistance in, in, helping define statistically significant versus statistically asignificant. And the the thing, the analog, the analogy that I always go to is like a pitcher, right? So let's say a pitcher meditates and becomes clairvoyant and suddenly can throw uh, what once was a 100-mile-an-hour fastball and now can throw a 150-mile-an-hour fastball. That is a very significant result, but it's just this one pitcher. No other pitcher who has ever meditated has ever had any kind of result. That is statistically asignificant. It is not significant. However, if 100 pitchers meditate and all of their fastballs go up even one mile an hour, that is statistically significant because it is a wide swath of people even though the results are small. So this is this goes back to the 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 plant um the plant the blessing of the water experiments. Mm-hmm. We're talking about a measure of millimeters but because it happened across all plants, even if it is a 1% or a 0.1% growth, we understand that it's statistically significant because it happened across the board. Am I correct in that in that analysis? Of- it, it happens in a systematically repeatable way, mm-hmm. yes. So the skeptic might look at this and say, oh, well, these plants only became 1% more viable or, two per- or, or a half of a percent more viable why should I care, right? How does that affect the way the price of eggs? And so I, I want to give you an, an opportunity to kind of advocate for, even though we aren't levitating or predicting the lottery numbers, why is this statistical significance important to continue to study? The same question could have been asked of Benjamin Franklin when he was studying sparks by flying kites in, in electrical storms. 
So at the time, if somebody had, had, had suggested to Franklin that someday the entire world would be powered by electrical grids that were made out of the same stuff as the little sparks he was seeing, he would have thought they'd been crazy. Or maybe not, because he was a pretty smart guy. So at the leading edge of science, we're always dealing with uncertainty. And uh, when it gets big enough and reliable enough to turn it into a technology, it's not science anymore. Then it's technology. So the, the fun at the leading edge of science is that almost by definition, we're going where no one has gone before, right? We're, we're discovering new kinds of things. So we want to have confidence that the small effects that we're seeing are real. That's where statistics can help. Uh, we can't actually predict very well at this point, would this ever become practical? We, we don't know yet. Now, it turns out that there are some practical uses. The, the primary one that's used today is in healing. So, for example, uh, there's, there's Reiki, there's Joe Ray, there's therapeutic touch. There's a whole bunch of different healing modalities that people use and that are efficacious, even in clinical trials. And we don't really understand why they work. And what makes them... Uh, transition from something like a, a local bioelectromagnetic field effect, which is possible, into a psychic effect is when the, uh, the, the Reiki practitioner, for example, can heal the person from 10 miles away, which is part of Reiki. Part, in fact, it's part mm -hmm. of all of these healing modalities. It works non-locally. The moment that you start working with something which is non-local, like healing effects, uh, it is probably going to involve something very similar to psi, if not be exactly the same as what we call psi. In the laboratory, we're always going to deal, at least in beginning stages, we're dealing with fairly small magnitude effects. But because we can get high confidence in it, uh, at least offers the possibility that eventually we'll be able to turn it into a technology. So that would, that would be nice. In the meantime... What we, what we can describe these things as from a, a mainstream scientific perspective is that these are anomalies. These are things that don't quite fit yet into our ways of understanding how the world works. And the anomalies are always the place where, where we see uh, scientific breakthroughs. It's like the, the buds of knowledge that we don't understand. And if those buds grow and, and flower, that's a whole new realm of science. Like it opens a whole new realm. So one of the studies that you have talked about in some of your lectures is a presentiment study where people seem to somehow subconsciously, they can predict a forthcoming image, whether it's going to be calming or disturbing. So they're sitting there. They know that an image is coming. They don't know what it is. A certain amount of time passes. And then you're... Um, you're measuring their skin conductance. Is that what you were measuring? One of many measures, yes. Okay. And so what you saw was that um, before the traumatizing, traumatizing image, there was a spike in, would we call it anxiety? Arousal. Yeah. Arousal. Yeah. Right. So th this, this experiment is designed to uh, see whether or not your sense of, of present awareness can be expanded. So is it, is it really just around 500 milliseconds? That's usually the, the estimate of what the present feels like, like a half a second long. But some people, especially in meditative states and other, other strange states, will feel as though their sense of present expands and that starts pulling into the future, pushing into the future. This experiment uh, was motivated by people who describe real world 
situations like driving along a highway, which they've done a million times before, and they know they're going to come to a, a red light at some point. Uh, and this day they're driving in that spot and it's a green light, so they're going, but they feel something is wrong about the intersection. It's not a knowledge, it's simply a feeling. So they, the closer they get to their green light, the worse it feels, so they slow way down. And as they approach the light, somebody would blast it through the red light crossways mm. and would have hit them broadside if they had kept going the usual speed. And so they, I call this a presentiment because they, don't, they didn't know that was going to happen. They just felt that something was wrong. So the laboratory analog is you want to put somebody in that kind of danger, but without really being in danger. And you do that by providing calm pictures or emotional pictures. We know very well what happens after you see an emotional picture. And so our hypothesis in this case was maybe uh, physiology begins to give a mimic, like a little pre-echo of what is about to happen because part of our attention is, is extended through, through time. When we did this with people who are not meditators and meditators, what we found somewhat to our surprise is that the, uh, we actually did it in several different versions, but in the one where you're looking at pictures in particular, meditators are not as reactive as normal people. Right. That makes complete sense. Yeah. I mean, you become so yeah. calm internally, that especially if you go into a meditative state, all kinds of chaos could break loose and you can still remain calm. So physiologically, right. you're not as sensitive for this kind of experiment as somebody who tends to be like on a, on a tight wire. Those people do really mm -hmm. well in this experiment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if you, if you tend to freak out when you see certain pictures, that's who we want in this experiment. Yeah. So the perfect would be something like a spider phobic or snake phobic. Uh, where it's not simply that they don't like to see snakes or, or spiders, but they like really freak out. Well, that's perfect for this experiment because you, you want to see, is, is there some portion of your unconscious constantly scanning what's about to happen? And if you're about to be face-to-face -face with a spider, you, you need to know that. And so that person's going to have a bigger response. Now, the contrast is if you give a very mild stimulus, and we did this with long-term meditators and controls, a very mild stimulus, like you're wearing glasses that have a little tiny LED in it that just flash every so often with your eyes closed, or you're wearing uh, earbuds and it makes a little beep sound. So it's not very disturbing. There, the meditators did really well because even they're in their meditative state. These were non-dual meditators. So they talk about getting into states of spaciousness and timelessness where their, their awareness begins to spread out. Well, we did see that for about a second and a half before the light flash, before the audio turn uh, tone, their brains began to show a change. A second uh, and a half? Yeah. That's so much time. Uh, well, for the, the presentiment using skin conductance, it's three seconds. And for using heart rate, it's up to eight seconds. That's wow. so eight much seconds. time. Yeah. So it's, it sounds like a lot of time, and I suppose it is, except that it's, as I said before, it's like a time symmetry going on. If you look at how heart rate responds when you get a stimulus. It takes a long time. It takes like eight seconds to have a response. Skin conductance takes around three seconds. Your brain takes less than a second. So the presentiments that we're getting are like a pre-echo of the same length. And if you're really good, you can create an image that causes a double reaction. So at, what I mean is if you're taking skin conductance and you see a picture and you know instantly what it is, you will have a single reaction because you process it immediately. If you give a, a picture that looks like flesh tone, but you're not completely sure what you're looking at, 
the flesh tone will create a, an initial reaction. And then when you realize what you're looking at, you get a second. So in these double bump responses, you get a double bump response. Wow. So again, suggesting that it's it's some kind of a time symmetric effect, something like that. Yes. Tell us about your new book and what anything that you're excited about that you're working on right now. Well, I, it's not really that new. Real Magic came out in 2018, but it's in six languages now, I guess. So French just was published. Uh, Bulgarian is coming out soon. So what I'm working on now is most of my research now is actually like looking at psychokinetic effects, mind-matter mind interaction, direct interaction. And I'm trying to figure out a way of demonstrating whether it's causal or not, because there's two ways of interpreting what's happening. When, when, when it looks like the mind is causing something to happen at a distance, uh, it might be precognition, because it, it, it seems strange to think of it in this way, but if I want a certain outcome to occur, like I'm intending something as simple as tossing a die, there, there are two ways of then interpreting what's happening. One is I'm, my mind is somehow causing the die to land in a certain way. The other way, though, is that I, I get a glimpse of what the future is going to be, and I say, you know what, now I'm going to try to throw a four. And I throw it, and I don't do anything to the die, but I was able to look into the future and see that, sure enough, it's going to end up being a four. So that was precognition, which could look like a psychokinetic effect. And so there are many subtle ways in which something that looks like a causal force is in fact not. It's some kind of retroactive information coming backwards in time. And that's, that's one of the things I'm working on now is a way to establish if it is in fact a forward causal effect or a retro causal uh, perception effect. Well, you'll have to keep us posted. Best of luck. That sounds really interesting. Thank you. Where can listeners find more from you? Two places. The place where I work is the Institute of Noetic Sciences, which is noetic.org, N-O-E-T-I-C.org. Uh, my personal website is deanradin.org, where, where I have my publications. And uh, As a scientist, I, I, I write a lot, and I write books and articles, and so on. I do, I don't know, I've done thousands of interviews. But mainly what I do is stuff in the laboratory or things that have to do with analytical work. I do the outreach partially because I feel an obligation that I know that there are a lot of people interested in these things. And unless you spend a fair amount of time with the right literature, you're very likely to not run into any of it except for ghostbusting shows on TV. <laughs> and so the ghostbusting <laughs> shows are entertaining, but that's very different than the kinds of things that my colleagues and I do. Well, thank you so much. You're welcome. We love it. <laughs> Thanks for listening, and thanks again to Dr. Raiden for joining us on the podcast. You can learn more from him at noetic.org. That's N-O-E-T-I-C dot org. And don't forget to follow Yoga Journal on social media for daily updates and inspiration. You can also follow me on Instagram at lins.tucker for more behind-the-scenes looks at Yoga Journal and beyond. That's it for this episode of The Yoga Show. Tune in two weeks for a brand new installment. The Yoga Show is produced by me and Aviv Rubenstein. Follow him on social media at Rambo Calrissian theme music by Katie Canavan. More from her at Accordion to Katie on Instagram. Until next time for The Yoga Show, I'm Lindsay Tucker. We'll see you on the mat.